Well, good evening. It is a joy to meet all of you, and I am very thankful for the opportunity to come here, and I do hope that these lessons will be beneficial to you. Uh, I want to encourage you to take out a Bible and follow along. Make certain that what I say is God's Word and not man's opinion. Uh, it's just not worth much if it's just what I think. It needs to be what God has said. Chip gave me a, a heads up this morning about uh, the, the uh, Woodland Hill Church uh, dress code, and uh, he informed me that nobody will be wearing a suit, nobody will be wearing a tie, and I thought, well, okay, I guess I can meet you halfway. So I took my jacket off, and for me, that's a big step. It feels very awkward right now. Well, I want to give you a heads up. Normally, I'm a, I'm a fairly short preacher. I don't talk for very long. And you notice that word normally. This is not one of my short lessons. This is one of my longest lessons that I have, but it is of great importance. And if I had opportunity, I would preach it in every congregation I could in the United States. There seems to me to be a problem. Something peculiar has gone wrong. I spend time with older Christians, good Christians, faithful Christians who now are in the last days of their life and they know it and they're scared. They're afraid to die. They're afraid of judgment. Something's gone wrong. If I can go out into the world and the people of the world will tell me how they're confident in their salvation, confident that they're going to a better place, confident in the afterlife, and then we come within the church where we have God's Word and God's promises, and we're the ones who doubt something has gone wrong when that's the case. Well, this lesson may not be for you, and you're welcome to not listen if you don't want to. If you're a person who looks in the mirror, looks at your own reflection into your own eyes, and you smile and think, I am everything God could ever want, you don't need to listen to this sermon. I might recommend you spend the time reading the Scriptures and correcting your attitude, but you don't need to listen to this sermon, at least not the first half. No, this lesson is for everybody else who looks in the mirror who looks at themselves and sees themselves in ways that nobody else can, nobody else does, that knows, knows what's been done, knows the heart, and knows what it's like to look at themselves in the mirror and say, I hate you. I can't stand who you are. And then wonders, how can God love me. This lesson's for you. But before we get into it, well, what we're going to talk about is being imperfect, having flaws, knowing your weaknesses, and still being saved. A more catchy uh, title that I've just never quite decided to put on the PowerPoint. I've never decided to use it, but it's a more catchy title. is How to Be a Horrible Person and Still Make It to Heaven. And that's really what this lesson is, not to embrace the horribleness, 
but it's for people who feel horrible and are not really wrong. How do we horrible and still make it to heaven? The Bible gives us three crucial attributes, three things we can focus on that will take a horrible person and bring them to Christ, a horrible person and bring them to heaven. But I do want to say before we get into that, all right, turn it on. Turn it off. There we go. One thing that I need to say before we get into the night's lesson, and this is true before we get into any of the other lessons, we need to make certain that we keep this straight. Salvation is not dependent on you. It is dependent on Christ. First and foremost, there is no other way to be saved than through Jesus. We're told in John 14 and verse 6, He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through Him. No other way. Acts chapter 4 and verse 12 tells us that there is no other name under heaven by which all men must be saved. No other way to be saved than through Jesus. Romans chapter 8 and verse 1 tells us that there is only one question that matters on the day of judgment. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The only question on the day of judgment is, do you have Jesus? If you have Jesus, doesn't matter what your life was like, doesn't matter how long you had him, doesn't matter anything else, if you have Jesus on the day of judgment, you are saved. And it doesn't matter how long you used to have him, it doesn't matter how many good things you've done, it doesn't matter how respected you are or how loved you are or how many good things you've done, if you don't have Jesus on the day of judgment, you are lost. It's the only thing that question. That's the only question that matters. However, we know that Jesus came and loved everyone. Jesus died for everyone, but not everyone will be saved. Which means that as much as it is all about Jesus, it does become about us to some degree. There are some things we can do to ruin our relationship with Jesus. There are some things we can do to maintain our relationship with Jesus. We're told in Galatians 5 and verse 4 that you are severed from Christ. You who are seeking to be justified by the law, you have fallen from grace. There is some things that are up to us. And I want to talk about three of those then this evening. Three attributes. And the first one is, it is the attribute that is timeless. We go to the Old Testament before the law. This is what God wanted from man. You go to the time period of the law. It didn't change. This is what God wanted from mankind. The law then is nailed to the cross, and we live in the time of grace and the time of Christ. And you know what? It is still the same thing that God has wanted. It is a timeless attribute. Throughout time, God has wanted to see within us faith, a people that trust in Him a people that believe in His existence, believe in His power, believe in His might, but behold the power of faith. In Romans chapter 4, starting in verse 1, it says, What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has found? For if Abraham was justified by works, He has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now understand that what it's saying there is that Abraham 
When God looked at Abraham, God looked at him and said, you are right, you are a good person. But he did not look at Abraham and say, you do good things, therefore you're a good person. That's not what he does. Abraham found something different. And despite what all of my Bible t- class teachers taught me when I was a kid, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were amazing men of righteousness. And then I read Genesis. I said, wait a second, where is that? These guys aren't as righteous as people were making them out to be. Abraham is a great man. I wonder how Sarah felt about Abraham. When Abraham goes to a foreign nation and he's scared, he's scared of what men are going to do to him, so he tells his wife, I want you to lie about our relationship so that the scary men will focus on you. How do you think she felt about his righteousness? We don't see Abraham doing these amazing, great deeds. We just see God coming and calling him, and he answers the call. God makes promises, and he believes the promise. He has tremendous faith, but I don't know about tremendous righteousness. But what happens, though, is that Abraham has found a secret. He has found something to where when he believes in God, God looks at him and says, but you are right. You're right with me. Because you have that attribute I'm looking for. You have faith. Now keep going. In verse 4, it says, Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but is what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessings on the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works, blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven, and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. He's talking about people that aren't going to look themselves in the mirror and think of themselves as so great. They see their sins. They see their ungodly. They see that they have done the wrong things. And yet God sees their faith and says, you're right with me. So in Hebrews chapter 11, we're told without any question that faith is just absolutely paramount to our salvation. It says, without faith, it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. We cannot, we cannot please God without being believers, without faith. And of course, Hebrews 11 is is this great chapter of faith, right? What's the point of it? Well, there's actually several points, but here's one of the main ones. If you look at Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, he defines faith, and then he defines what what point he's making. Verse 2, for by it the men of old gained approval. And then when he's done with the chapter, he comes right back to that point. He says in verse 39, and all these having gained approval through their faith did not receive what was promised. But how did they gain approval? Through faith. And Hebrews 11 sets forth this pattern for us, and it says, so-and-so, by faith, did such-and-such. And And then it's going to do that again and again and again. By faith, so-and-so did such-and-such. By faith, so-and-so did such-and-such. Over and over and over again. And by faith, they found approval with God. But Hebrews 11 could have been written differently. It could have been written differently and made the same point for us. And instead of a list of here's all these deeds of faith that these men did, amazing deeds, important deeds, it could have instead been a list of sins. And it could have been, by faith, so-and-so was justified despite 
blank. And if we did that, and we went back through Hebrews 11 and stopped thinking of people as just incredibly righteous based on their actions and their deeds, and instead really looked at their lives, what we would find is a list filled with, with liars, people willing to deceive their parents, murderers, adulterers, prostitutes. That one's interesting because that one's in the text. In Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 31, it says, By faith Rahab the harlot did not perish along with those who were disobedient after she had welcomed the spies in peace. She never lost the description. Thousands of years later, and she's still Rahab the harlot. Do you suppose there's any point in her life where she could look in the mirror and be proud of herself and think how great of a person she is. She is forever known as the prostitute, but in Hebrews 11, she's Rahab the approved. Despite it, how'd she manage that? She believed when the others wouldn't. She believed enough to betray her, her family, betray her country. She believed enough to change. She believed enough to t risk her life. She believed enough to join God's side. And so God does not look at Rahab and see the prostitute. He sees the approved because of faith. So faith is really important. We're going to talk about that one again, Lord willing, tomorrow night. But the second attribute then, and you can't, you can't have one of these without the other. This one's really important too. And it's the attribute, of course, of love. Because we're told in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 in those first few verses, if you have faith to move mountains but don't have love, you are nothing. And he talks about all these great deeds you could do, some of them even miraculous, but says if you don't have love, you are nothing. Love is crucial. And love is powerful in our relationship to God. In 1 John, 1 John chapter 1, I turn to 1 John chapter 1 so that we understand the audience to whom John is writing. He says in verse 8, if we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. For if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Does that audience have an understanding, a grasp, an unforgetting grasp of their guilt? They go through life knowing I'm supposed to admit I sin. They're supposed to be aware of it and never deny it. And yet, despite that, when he gets to 1 John chapter 4 and he talks about their approach, their attitude towards the day of judgment, they don't take their sins, their wickedness, their guilt, and make it to where they're now terrified to die. Instead, what he says in verse 16, uh, verse 17, by this love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence 
in the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves punishment, and the one who fears is not perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. He said there at the end of verse 17, as he is, so also are we in this world. This whole context is God is love. And if we love, then we are like God and we don't need to fear judgment. It is an attribute that people who have sin and know their sin and confess their sin can have confidence when they go face God. So how are we going to illustrate this? Well, love of others, forgiveness of Forgiving other people, being merciful. That's what we see in, in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6. We see that we need to forgive people from the heart in Matthew chapter 18. In Matthew chapter 25, not using the word love, but it's the same concept. Jesus is judging people based on whether they helped those who were in need. You saw somebody who was naked, did you give them clothes? If they were hungry, did you give them food? If they were in prison, did you visit them? It's do you help people? That's That's love. And it's the way to pass judgment. But I want to give another example, and that's from Luke chapter 7. In Luke chapter 7, starting in verse 36. Now one of the Pharisees was requesting him to dine with him, and he entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. That's who she is. That's how she's known. Her reputation is one of filth. Disgusting. There was a woman in the city who was a sinner. And when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and kept wiping them with the hair of her head and kissing his feet and anointing them with the perfume. Now when the Pharisee, who had invited him, saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet... He would know who and what sort of person this woman is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. Now, how do you go through life feeling good about yourself if that's what everybody thinks about you? And you know what's interesting to me? Jesus is not going to say, now, Simon... You be nice. You just don't know this woman. All that you've heard about her, it's slander. She is really a good woman. He's not going to do that. He's actually going to say, you know what, Simon? You're right. You're right about her. Jesus answered him, Simon... I have something to say to you. And he replied, say it, teacher. 
A moneylender had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. So which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, you have judged correctly. Turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. For this reason I say to you, her sins, which are many. You're right, Simon. She's not somebody who has sinned just occasionally, just rarely. She's not somebody who's mostly righteous. She has a lot of sin. But can you imagine being her at this moment? All this sin, all this guilt, all this reputation. And here you hear the words of the Lord say, your sins, which are many, but then says, have been forgiven. Why? For she loved much. But he was forgiven little, loves little. Then he said to her, your sins have been forgiven. Did that change her reputation? Did it change her past? Did it change the way she was going to look at herself in the mirror? That she would ever look at herself and say, I'm everything God could possibly want. I'm exactly, I'm, I'm a great person. It doesn't change that at all. But it changes the way God views her. And that's all that matters. I think we need to change the way we view things. If there was a church, and the church was filled with people that grew up in the church, the term we use, they always went to Bible class. They've been members of the Lord's body all their life. Their parents were members, their grandparents were members. It's a church that is filled with people who have their life together. They have been listening to the wisdom of God's Word, and they have been following it. And they are, I oh, know they're not perfect, none of us are perfect, but they're really close. They are really good people, and we're not going to argue it. They're really good people. And you have over here another church. And it's a church of people whose lives are in shambles. People that have been caught up with all sorts of addictions, drugs, alcohol, pornography, homosexuality. Their marriages are falling apart. They're divorced, adultery. But they're confessing their sins. Which church would you want to be a part of? I know we're always looking for this church over here. We're always looking for that one that, that they just do everything right. I tell you, I fit in better with that one. 
And you want to know what else? Guess which one worships God better? This church will worship God because he told them to. And that's not wrong, but they worship God because he told them to. This church, they're like that woman. With all of their passion and all of their heart, they know what they are, they know what they've done, and they know that he has promised to forgive them. And that means more to them than it does to these people over here. And so Jesus describes the way that they love. And you can see it with Simon, Simon the Pharisee. He's been this guy. He's been the one who's obeying God and following the rules and so careful. And there's nothing wrong with that. But when Jesus comes into his house, he doesn't do anything. At most, what he's looking at is saying, I have a prophet in my house. What an honor for me to have a prophet in my house. But here's this other woman, and she won't, she won't look up. She just falls down, and she cries, and she weeps, and she kisses him, and she puts perfume on him. She's worshiping him. And Simon hasn't thought to do it. I think maybe we need to change the way we view things. Those people that are dealing with sin, struggling with sin, overcoming their sin, fighting their sin, are amazing Christians. They worship from love. And that love, that love takes people like this woman, people with a reputation and self-doubt, and it makes them right. It makes them saved. But there's a third attribute. Do you know what it is? I imagine if I went across the churches of Christ across America, from my experience, I have a good hunch what everybody wants the third attribute to be. Now, I can't say that's true for you. I feel pretty safe that across the country, there are going to be people who are really upset that it wasn't number one or number two based on our behavior and our teaching. And of course, that would be obedience. And you want to know what? It's not obedience. That would be ridiculous. How would we say that the people who are going to be imperfect get to heaven by being perfect? No wonder we're afraid to die. We set a standard we're not going to reach. A standard we can't reach. It's not obedience. Now, I've had some people come up to me afterwards and say, I know, I know, it's hope. And I love you. Because that's a good scriptural answer, right? Faith, love, and hope. The three are given to us in 1 Corinthians 13. It's not hope either. And the reason why is because hope and faith are nearly the same thing. They're in the same definition, right? Faith is the substance of things hoped for. When we're talking about a list like this of attributes, you're not going to see a huge distinction between faith and hope. No, it's not hope. You want to know what it is? It's humility. Humility is the attribute that God adores. And we sometimes forget. In Luke 15, 
If you've been to a gospel meeting before, you have probably heard Luke 15 be brought up. We love talking about Luke 15, and for good reason. It's the, the parable of the prodigal son. You know, I think I read it wrong. For a long time, I, I'm pretty sure I read this wrong. I didn't really see, I didn't see its depth, its intensity. So, so starting off in verse 11, it says, And he said, A man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, For Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. So he divided his wealth between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country, and there he squandered his estate with loose living. Let me ask you, are you angry when you read that? Because if you're not angry, you're like me and you didn't read it right. I'm pretty sure the audience at this point is furious. About three years ago now, I was headed home in Colorado. My parents were on the way, and I stopped at their house just briefly to talk to them for a little bit. And then I was getting ready to finish the journey, so I was going back to my car, and as I started heading that direction, my mom stopped me. She said, I want, I want you to come into the kitchen with me. So I walked into the kitchen, and on the table, there was a package like this, wrapped up in paper, that instantly tells you something, does it? It tells you something about what's in here, that it's something that needs to be protected. She said, I want you to have this. So I opened it up. Carefully. And it was porcelain candy dish with pretty flowers printed on. It has handwriting on the back, a piece of tape that's been put on. And it says, Mary I. Vance, my great-grandma. And it's not in my handwriting. That's my mother's handwriting. This has been in my family for a long time. And my mom, who is treating it so carefully, is now giving it to me. Now, I know we have just met. Some of us haven't even had a chance to meet, so there's a lot you don't know about me, but I don't happen to be a collector of candy dishes. But this has a place of honor in my house. I take careful care of it. I don't bring it to the gospel meetings where I'm flying. Only when I can keep it safe. 
I put it with the china. I put it where it could be seen, where it is shown to be important. Not because I care about the color or the design or the usefulness of it. This is family. This is my mom. And she is everything to me. So I honor this inheritance of mine. But could you imagine if as my mom was handing this to me and showing me the writing on the back and saying to me, my great-grandma gave this to my grandma who gave this to my mom who gave it to me and now I want you to have it. And I said, Mom, I see where we're going here. Can I just stop you for a second? How much do you think I could get for this on eBay? Because I sure would like to spend some time with a prostitute, and they're getting expensive. That's this guy. Do you understand? He took family, his inheritance, what his family had worked for and lived for and been passing down. He's a Jewish man. So we're talking about the inheritance that is a promise from God. This is the sort of thing that Naboth would die for to, rather than give to somebody else, give to a king. This is an inheritance. And he took it, he sold it, spent time with prostitutes, and lost it all. We're supposed to be angry. We're supposed to be mad at this man. His audience is supposed to look at him and say, we would never do that. And, and God, forgive, God forbid our sons would ever do that. No, not that. Barry, you want to help me out here? I'm going to start reading again. You want to stop me? When this man does something to feel good about himself, when this man will now be able to look in the mirror and say, I'm an okay guy, can you do that? You know where to stop me, don't you? Anybody else? Now, when he had spent everything, verse 14, a severe famine occurred in that country, and he began to be impoverished. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him into the fields to feed swine. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, and no one was giving him anything. But when he came to his senses and said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I am dying here with hunger? I will get up. Go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and in your sight I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. So he got up and came to his father. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, 
You think this got easier after his dad just treated him like that? After his dad showed how important family is after what he had done, did it get easier or did it just get harder? Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, quickly, bring out the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. And bring the fattened calf, kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. And they began to celebrate. Now notice the dad doesn't say, look son, what you did wasn't so bad. That's not it. And the dad doesn't say, look, son, I'm glad that you're back, but what you did was awful, so you're going to have to make it up. We're going to have to come to some sort of an agreement. And then we'll have a review, a family get-together, and we'll decide if we're going to bring you back. It's nothing like that. He welcomes the son back. He puts on the robe, he puts on the ring, he puts on the sandal, he kills the calf, he celebrates. Now Jesus is going to go on with the parable to talk about the brother, but he didn't have to. I kind of view this guy as a real person. You can relate to him, you can understand him. So what if we continued his story? What if the next day he woke up and he looked in the mirror? How would he feel about himself? I imagine he would feel very happy to have had food after being starved until he looked in the mirror and saw himself. What if it was two days, a week, two weeks, a year? You know the challenge is when he's looking in the mirror, there's stuff in the house that's missing and it'll never come back. I don't think this man could ever look in the mirror and feel good about himself. But if he'd look just a bit lower, the best robe, a ring, and sandals. He is not worthy, but he's been glorified nonetheless. The Father has shown him how much he loves his Son, not how worthy his Son is. And this is what God does. He doesn't show us how worthy we are. He shows us how much he loves us. So what did he get right? He came to his senses. He realized he was wrong and had the courage to admit it. That's humility. And that humility, God adores. And it's almost like Jesus wanted us to learn that lesson because just a few chapters later in Luke chapter 18, we find these people who aren't listening to this sermon because they look in the mirror and love themselves. 
Luke 18 and verse 9 says, As he also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Two men went into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus has made it perfectly clear. Here's the trait. Here's the attribute that makes the difference humility. A person who is broken in heart. A person who struggles to look in the mirror. A person who is aware and painfully aware of the things they've done wrong. But what about that Pharisee? Why is he so bad? You know what? If we didn't have this parable and I gave you two people and said you can be one of them, we would always pick the Pharisee. I mean, really, really, if I tell you, you have two people that you can be, you could be the person who always does what's right and never does what's wrong and is religious. That's the Pharisee. Is that so bad? Or you could be the person whose life is in shambles who is the worst of society and hated by all. Which one you want to be? But once we put it in the parable, it suddenly becomes obvious. You want to be the sinner because he goes home right. He goes home right with God. And this other person who's so amazing and I'm not going to say he's lying. We're going to take him at his word. Jesus created him. Jesus is telling us we're going to take him at his word. He doesn't do the wrong things. He does the right things. He's religious. But he's not right. You know why? He's missing one trait. And it was the most important one. Humility. The people that break at the feet of God, fall down and beg and cry, the people who aren't so impressed with themselves, the people who are emotionally devastated, are the ones that God lifts up and says, but you're mine. And the ones who got everything right and stand up aren't right. Now, you're probably a little excited here because that's three points. The sermon must be over. I told you it's a long one. We kind of hit the halfway point. Not quite. We're, we're beyond halfway, but stick with me. I know that if I finish the sermon right here, I believe that if I finish the sermon right here, afterwards somebody would come up and say, but Jared, come on, obedience. Fair enough. I didn't put obedience up there, but you know what? Obedience absolutely is important. 
I mean, we're told in 2 Thessalonians 1 and verse 8 that judgment is going to come upon those who did not obey the gospel. Obedience matters. We're told in Matthew chapter 7, verses uh, 22 and 23, it seems like it's 21, where Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me on the last day, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father will enter. Obedience matters. In 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 through 10, it talks about these people will not inherit the eternal kingdom. And he talks about this sinful things, this sinful list. Obedience matters. You can come to Christ as a prostitute. You don't get to stay a prostitute. Obedience matters. But, if our goal is to, at some point in our life, be good enough to face God, we will never have confidence. You will never reach that goal. Never, ever. If our confidence is dependent on us being good enough, it won't happen. But, if there were four things, four attributes, I still wouldn't put obedience as the fourth. You want to know why? Because it's already up there. Do you see it? If you don't see obedience up there, you do not know faith, love, or humility. They cannot be separated from obedience. Faith leads to obedience. In Hebrews chapter 3 and chapter 4, it talks here about disobedience, but it becomes the same point. It talks about the generation of Israel that comes out of Egypt and has headed towards the promised land, and they don't make it. And the answer is, why didn't they make it? And so he says in verse 18, And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they are not able to enter because of unbelief. Did you see what he just did there? He swapped them disobedience than unbelief. And you know what he does in chapter 4? He swaps them again. You know why? They're connected. Faith leads to obedience. Jesus says in Luke 6 and verse 46, why do you call me Lord, Lord? That's a statement of faith. And do not do what I say. Think about it. If we declare Jesus as master, he gets to make the rules. If we call him king, he gets to make the rules. And if he doesn't get to make the rules, then you don't believe. Faith leads to obedience. If you believe he's the almighty God, he gets to make the rules. Love leads to obedience. What did Jesus say? If you love me, you will keep my commandments, which is just so obvious. If you love God, and there's something that God can't stand, if you love him, you don't do it. If there's something that God just loves, and it makes him so happy. If you love him, you do it. Love leads to obedience. If instead you're saying, well, I know God likes it, but I'm going to do my own thing. That's not love. And humility leads to obedience. James 1 and verse 21 tells us to humbly submit to the word implanted which is able to save your soul. It's obviously going to be humility. There's this idea that says, you know what? God's thoughts are better than mine. God's ways are better than mine. 
God is greater than I am, I will do what he says. It's directly connected. Here's where it gets interesting. Let me illustrate this with a graph. Faith, love, humility. Three traits that you really need to know, really need to focus on. They lead to obedience. But did you know you can't reverse the chart? If we focus on obedience, which so often we're accused of, if all we talk about is obedience, 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 obedience. Now remember, I've told you, obedience is important. It really is important. But if all we talk about is obedience, 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 we don't get the traits that matter. Obedience doesn't lead to faith. I know I heard of a preacher when I was younger who stood up. He'd been preaching at a congregation for many years, and he stood up one Sunday morning. Everybody was expecting him to preach a sermon just like he had the previous week and the week before that and for so long. And he stood up instead and said, you know what, I've been fooling you. I don't believe in God and walked out. How'd he fool them? For years, he'd been obeying. He'd shown up, preached the truth. When the basket came around, he gave. When the songbooks were open, he sang. He didn't use instrumental music. He was following the rules. And you know what was inside him? Nothing. Empty. No faith. Faith does not lead to obedience. I'm sorry, that's faith does lead to obedience. Undermined my whole sermon. Obedience doesn't make you believe. We can make people obey. We can't make them believe. Obedience doesn't make somebody believe. And obedience doesn't make people love. I know because I was a kid. And I used to like to play with my friends outside. And every now and then, my mom, my mean old mom, she would come outside and say, Jared, clean your room. And I would go inside and I would go up to my room and I would throw the clothes in the hamper and I'd take my, my toys and I would throw them in the closet and I'd make my bed and I'd say, I love my mom. Oh, you know what? Obedience sometimes leads to resentment, not love. Obedience can lead to hatred. You're making me do this. You're making me do something I don't like doing. You're making me give up something I don't like giving up. Sometimes people are obedient and it doesn't lead to love, it leads to hatred. They're obedient, but not loving. And obedience absolutely does not lead to humility. Often it leads to arrogance. Go back to Luke 15. There's that brother of the prodigal son. So picking up now in verse 25, there's a celebration going on, but the, prodigal, the, the brother's not there. It says, now his older son was in the field, and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing, and he summoned one of the servants and began inquiring what these things could be. And he said to him, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he became angry and was not willing to go in. And his father came out and began pleading with him. But he answered and said to his father, Look, 
for so many years, I have been serving you and I have never neglected a command of yours. I read that so many times and hadn't noticed that. Jesus is making this guy up. The father's not going to tell him, now, son, you're exaggerating. Let's take him at his word. He never disobeyed. So what's wrong with him? He won't go in. He won't accept a sinner, a brother, who's come back. Obedience makes arrogant. Luke 18, the Pharisee. God, I thank you I'm not like this man. He goes through and he proves it. He says, look at all the things that I do, but look what it made him. It made him arrogant. I know this one too well. It's not often I preach in an audience where um, somebody knew me when I was a kid, so I have to be careful. Chip, you can nod, be honest. Was I a good kid? I was the good kid. I was the one who obeyed. I was the one that parents would hope their kids would grow up to be like me. And they weren't wrong. I did pretty good. Never good enough. At some point, I realized I wasn't good. At some point, I realized my sins that I had been ignoring. But you know what the worst part of that it was? I added to it my attitude towards the other sinners. I wasn't good, but I looked down on everyone else. I did. Because I was proof you don't have to get caught up in drugs. I didn't get caught up in drugs. I was proof that you can obey your parents because I was obeying my parents. And that, that made me arrogant. But one day I looked in the mirror and I saw myself for real. And I saw my sins. Heard my voice and my heart of arrogance. And I broke. And then I was right with God. So, if you have trouble looking at yourself in the mirror, three attributes. They make a world of difference for people like you and me. Faith, love, and humility. If you're not a Christian, we encourage you to become one, to join us in this journey, to be baptized into Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. If you're a Christian and you have been wrong, you've been doing things that God hates, fix it. Fix it now. We're not here to judge you. We are here to help you. Why don't you come as we stand and as we sing?